Hello and welcome. UVA Speaks is a podcast of lifetime learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university's alumni, friends, and families. My name is Susan Lynch, and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Vidya Mani, an Associate Professor of Business Administration at the Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia. Her research focuses on establishing the impact of operational decisions on performance under changing market conditions. Professor Mani leverages empirical models to develop data-driven insights that inform operations management theory in industry practice. In this podcast, Professor Mani will talk with us about the supply chain. So thank you, Professor Mani, for speaking with me today. Hello, Susan. Thank you for having me here and looking forward to the conversation. Okay, great. So let's start with this question. Everyone is talking about supply chain issues. And why is that? Supply chains are all around us, right? When we go to the grocery store to pick up a can of milk, we are part of the supply chain that gets the milk from plants or animals to us. Now, during the pandemic, when things shut down, we saw empty shelves and in a way expected that. When we could not find PPE, that is masks, shields, gloves, could not find places to buy them from, that's when we really started paying attention to the supply chain around these products, right? Once um, we open back, we will see, we almost expect that like a light switch flipping back up, everything comes back to normal. But then you still go into the stores and you see empty shelves, you see empty trucks, you see out of stock signs. We see that full impact of supply chains and it has become part of the vocabulary. So I'm always surprised that it is not a verb yet. Something like, you know, you have been supply chain when you do not find something. And even now, because there's so much awareness, every time that you see an empty space, you also see the note due to supply chain issues right there. And that's got all of us talking. Right, absolutely. So, you know, as you said, it's been about a year since the most severe lockdowns have been lifted due to the pandemic. So, but we're still seeing shortages and supply chain problems, as you mentioned. And certainly the most prevalent examples have been sort of the baby formula shortage. And if anyone has tried to buy a car lately, there are not that many to go around and prices have skyrocketed due to that. So um, what's going on? So this has been one of the most challenging questions from the White House to your local grocery store. And I've been working in this field for around two decades now. And some of these questions come up after every major disruption. So let's talk about the why part first, right? Once the lockdown lifted, what we see is only what is around us, which means everybody's back to normal, but in that small local area around us. We do not see what's happening halfway across the globe. Now, for example, how do you get a car, right? Where do these panels come from? The electronic panels that manage the controls that allow you to, on a click of the key fob, allow you to lock your car, right? Who makes the chips that goes into these panels? Typically, these come from China, Taiwan, other parts of East Asia, and the metals and the minerals that go into making these chips come from parts of Africa and South America. So when lockdowns happened, car sales and consequently car production came to a complete standstill. 
People were buying laptops, they were buying tablets and pretty much paying very high prices because everybody wanted a way to communicate with the rest of the world while during the lockdown. All the existing inventory of electronic components went into these laptops and tablets. Now, when we start going back here, everybody wants a car to drive. We can give you the shell of a car, but we can't give you the electronic components and the panels because they've already been taken up. Right. Even after factories come back online, even after lockdown is lifted at different places, there's something called a lead time, which we often forget in the supply chain. So it takes around six to eight months from production to assembly to getting that car on your lot. And that is if no other major disruption comes. So anytime you have the shortage of supply and you have this big demand that's not going anywhere, automatically allocation happens to the highest paying customers. So price goes up, right? And so if you're not finding a car right now, I would suggest hold on to it for some time before making a snap decision, right? Um, baby formula. This has been in the news recently and quite a few reasons for this, right? So first on the supply side, we only have a few manufacturers that make the formula or the powder. And so when, he, when any one of them goes offline or shuts down, there's a major shortage. So think of a major interstate. If that's blocked, what happens to the traffic? It comes to a complete standstill. That's what a major manufacturer going down means. Now you may ask, why only a few manufacturers? And this is where the economics of supply chain starts making a difference, right? So typically upstream in the supply chain, usually where this is the way we make the powder formula, the cost can be cut down drastically if we have economies of scale. Mm -hmm. And who doesn't like lower prices, right? That means you have a very efficient system with very large batch sizes. Now, what, when, when a disruption happens, an efficient system, when it goes down, is going to create a major disruption. What we want is flexibility around things like this. But unfortunately, the conversation that has happened till now has been efficient versus flexibility. What we need to have is efficient and flexibility. That's something that we need to start thinking about much more often, especially when you're looking at major disruptions that are coming up. On the demand side, it's not like we've not seen product recalls before. Cheese, lettuce, but in, in each of those cases, consumers could opt in into something else. So if you didn't get one kind of cheese, you could buy another kind of cheese. If you didn't get lettuce, you probably put kale, you put spinach. With baby formula, the consumers are babies. They either have the formula or they do not. And it's not just one formula. It's one of those 50 plus options that are out there and there's no substitution happening. Mm -hmm. So the minute the shortage happened, impact was immediate for us. Now in both these cases, the car shortage and the baby formula shortage, the one thing that's common is that you don't have people. So when things shut down, especially during the pandemic, we didn't have regular maintenance happening. We did not have inspections. So the likelihood of machines and equipment failing or those kind of recalls happening now is higher. And we do not have the people to come and get them back online. 
that means we are going to continue to see some of these shortages keep coming for us. If you're asking me, have we turned the corner? I would say close, but not yet. Right, right. You know, I think what this does is it shows the complexity of our markets, right? It's it's shown us in very stark detail the um, internationalization of all of our markets. And then also, like you said, I mean, I had no idea that there were so few places that actually manufactured baby formula. And I'm sure many people didn't either. And so that's an important reminder of the complexity of all of these things. Yeah, absolutely. So given um, that we're talking about all these supply chain issues, again, you said, uh, when can we expect things to be better soon? So, and this is what happened when I think we went into a lockdown. We were much more patient when we all had a life-threatening crisis at our doorstep. Mm -hmm. We looked for options and we understood that, yes, the movers are not coming in. Yes, the dry cleaning is not happening, right? So there were all those ancillary services that we were okay with not coming up. The minute the lockdown lifted, it was almost like a demand, like a pressure cooker that just the valve released. A whole lot of demand went through, but the supply has not gotten up. You have, first of all, the factories have not come back online. If they have, they don't have the workers. These are not high value jobs. They don't pay in six figures. Most of them, you're still talking about $15 per hour wages here, right? Even less in the supply factories of the world. And you have the lead times. So that's the reason it's going to take some time, at least around six to eight months, for us to feel some kind of normalcy if, and this is a very big if, a major disruption does not happen again. You might look back at me and say, hey, a pandemic will only happen once in 100 years, so we are good for another 100 years. No. Mm -hmm. If a major disruption like war, mm -hmm. like a nuclear power plant blow up, mm -hmm. like ports crumbling down, hackers taking over the complete grid, those kind of those are the major disruptions that we're talking about, which we have seen in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. They don't happen, then we can expect to come back to normal. If they do happen, this is going to be a lot more pain going around before we come back to normal. Yeah. So to build off of that, you know, we have other current events that are happening and the inflationary pressures. You know, today we'll find out if the Fed has increased the interest rate. Uh, we have a war in Ukraine. You know, as you mentioned, we have recession fears in this country, and. As you're saying, all of these impact the supply chain, but you, can you talk a little bit more about those types of pressures? This has been the greatest worry for us all through, for people, for all, those of us who work research on supply chain. We live in a globalized world, which means we have a global supply chain. And if we want to have the benefits of lower prices, round the year avocados, then you have to continue to live with a global supply chain. But when you say a global supply chain, it does not mean that every part comes from all parts of the globe. Usually it is one or two countries from where each part comes from. You have multiple members in the supply chain. Each of them comes from each of those couple of countries. And so we say it's a global supply chain, right? Now, 
in almost all major supply chains, you'll see that a few com components not only come from these one or two parts of the world, they also make up like 60-70% of the total production. One good example is around 50% of the neon gas that we need to make semiconductors that's used in the laser to make the chips comes from Ukraine, two companies in Ukraine. So a war in Ukraine with Russia cuts down that supply, you don't see cars on the lot. And that's that interplay between what happens in the world and our supply chains. Every nation that has a global supply chain that's flowing through it has an outsized impact on it with the policies that it takes. And that's geopolitics for you, right? Yeah. It's something we can have to contend with increasingly because we cannot make everything in our backyard. That's simply impossible. Mm -hmm. Now, on the flip side, if the supply chain works as intended, it's actually a good thing. It can buffer against natural hazards. So, for example, when the Texas grid went down, if all semiconductor manufacturing for use in the U.S. was concentrated there, we'd have lost all supply. But we did not because we do have a globally diversified supply chain. So that's the advantage of having it, but it has to function as intended. That's that intersection between national policies and the supply chain impacts, right? Um, you also see knock-on effects. So for example, when grain exports from Russia and Ukraine go down, right. as a person sitting here, you would say, why do I care? We make most of our grains and wheat, so true. But a lot of African countries like Sudan import grain. And for them, Ukraine and Russia are the major producers. That supply goes down. You see prices going up in these countries, including civil unrest happening. The oil that comes from that country now gets impacted. And so we see an impact of supply chain shortage on items completely unrelated to either wheat or Ukraine, Russia. Right. And that's that intersection between current events and global supply chains that you see. Uh, you're talking about inflationary pressures, recession fears, and all of that is supposed to help curb the demand, mainly because you want to get away from this big supply demand mismatch. So what you're going to see is smaller baskets, and less spending on discretionary products because you have less money to go around. So coming back to the example of your car, you have 100,000 miles on your car. Now you might wait six months before deciding to trade up, right? That's that differentiation we see. There's also going to be some pain at the micro level. So for example, outdoor furniture. Because of supply chain constraints for people who had ordered outdoor furniture, it's only now showing up on the docks of Walmart, Target, Home Depot, and so on. But given the inflationary pressure and the recession fear, you're going to find consumers not so willing to buy those items. These are the places where you're going to see huge inventory write-offs, losses. And that's what I mean by saying as the sectors balance out a little bit, there are going to be adjustment pains. But all of this is in an effort to get supply and demand to some kind of you know, equitable or a balanced level. Wow. Yeah, it's just so complex. <laughs> so that's why we need folks like you to help us understand this. So 
Uh, let's pivot the conversation a little bit. Um, how does the supply chain connect with global warming and global uh, client climate change effects? Uh, certainly, we're seeing a lot. This is a very hot summer for everybody across, you know, in this hemisphere across the globe. So, what are these connections? And this is something that we actually can do or make a proactive effort towards mitigation. Most of us would say, hey, a disruption happens, you are at the end of, at the receiving end of it, right? Here's an opportunity for us to make meaningful change. And the reason is every part of the supply chain buys from somewhere, sells to someplace, and in between does some processing. Each of those activities has emissions with it. Mm -hmm. So if you can get your global supply chains to work in a socially and environmentally responsible manner, you can find a way to target those emissions. That's what we all, we are, we all care about right now, right? So let's take an example, right? Have you ever wondered how the copper in your laptop, where is it made? How is it used? And what happens to it when you send it to recycling? That is, if you do recycle the laptop, mm -hmm. right? So currently, we recycle less than half of the electronic products across the world. Europe is around 60%, US is around 35, 38%. The numbers are different all over the countries. The countries with less infrastructure or systems, the numbers are even lower. Every step of the supply chain from making the copper, from getting the metal in, to making the filaments, to getting it assembled into the circuit boards, that those circuit boards get into making the laptop, and then it gets to you, mm -hmm. has a particular emission and a particular process associated with it. Mm -hmm. right. Once it's used, once we take those products back, if you do recycle, then the elements or the metals are, the, the circuit board is disassembled, you melt the metals, and then you reuse it back into the components and the process starts all over again. So that means you're taking that cycle back and forth, but it's not in like one cute little factory in your backyard. It crosses the globe at least seven to eight times. Mm. That itself contributes. Now, this is a good scenario. In other instances, what happens is a lot of times these laptops are taken the circuit boards are disassembled, put it into open steel containers, and a fire is lit so that you can get precious metals like gold and others out, very small quantities. This happens halfway across the globe in very hazardous conditions. And those fumes and metals get back into river streams or surrounding atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Fishes die, crops start failing, and you immediately have a crisis on hands. So if we are careful about where and how we buy things mm -hmm. and how we use them and how we dispose them, we can actually have a meaningful impact on the climate change and the emissions part of it. Now, it's as simple as going to a coffee shop and saying, can I have a recyclable cup mm -hmm. for the coffee? Which we do, which many of us do. Mm -hmm. But we do not think the same way when we are buying TVs, mm -hmm. when we are buying shoes, when we are buying furniture or mattresses. Mm -hmm. And that's the understanding that needs to come in. That's the connection that each one of us has to climate change. Right. Absolutely. So 
And finally, so finally, so you've spoken a little bit about what consumers need to do. You know, as consumers, we need to think about well, literally, how much we're consuming, what it is that we're consuming. Do we really need to do that? Is there are there other ways that we can do that as consumers? Um, but there's also governments as policymakers, and you know, to get the scales of these things to the point where there needs to be some sort of change. That's probably really where it comes in. So can you tell me a little bit about what can governments do as policymakers? So as consumers, let me say one thing first. We both have, we have a right and a responsibility. Mm -hmm. We have the right to ask that the products that we buy mm -hmm. are part of a sustainable supply chain. And we have a responsibility that we ourselves close the loop. How do we do that? That's where the policymakers can step in. How do they provide the infrastructure and the incentives to do that? Right. I can, I, I'm going to take a couple of examples here. The first one is the push towards EVs, the electric vehicles. Now, we all care about climate change, and almost every government has committed towards moving the fleet that uses less fossil fuel on the roads. So there is a big incentive and a push to encourage the use of EVs. And that's great. Or electronic vehicles. Electronic vehicles. Or electric vehicles, actually. Yes. The yes. ones that run, and that are they, they run on either a lithium-ion-based battery or a nickel-based battery. Right? right. So you don't have the internal combustion engine in that. So you don't have the fuel. Now, every government would like to get ahead of this problem, which means every government if you look up the national security pledges or plans or the fire plans, a major component of it would be developing that EV industry. Right? So we are doing this, we are creating this. The question that we need to ask is, where are those EV minerals going to come from? Because again, you're going to have this rush or a competition for making sure that each, of, each one of us is able to have the necessary amount of EV minerals and lithium does not grow in your backyard. Cobalt does not grow in our backyard, right? So you're going to find a rush towards creating these systems. That is one. The second is seven to 10 years down the line, what happens to these EV batteries? You cannot recycle the EV batteries to the same extent that you are able to recycle the lead acid batteries. So for example, with lithium ion, which is a popular technology right now, recycling rates are in lower of range of 30%. Mm -hmm. It's just not economical enough. If mm -hmm. we take all those batteries and we just dump them into the landfill, that goes against everything that we've been working towards. So we need the infrastructure to be able to put these batteries back to use in the second life, third life, or find a way to responsibly dispose of them. Mm -hmm. right. So that's that twofold nature where the government needs to be able to step in and provide the incentives so that the consumers can be more responsible. If we do that, we can actually arrest or change that trajectory that we have on climate change. If we do not do that, we are back in a crisis mode, this time one of our own making. Mm -hmm. This is no pandemic, no natural disaster. None of those things. We create this problem. Mm -hmm. That's where we need policymakers to step in and to get aligned among themselves. 
so that we can actually, as a society, move towards something that's more sustainable for the next 40, 50 years. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Mani, um, for sharing this information about the supply chain, which I said is certainly an issue we've all been talking about. You've shown us that this is a very complex issue, <laughs> uh, but this is an issue that we all have some responsibility to understand and then therefore to um, perhaps take responsibility for ourselves and our decisions. So thank you so much uh, for all of this information. Thank you for having me, Susan. And if we can make one difference after hearing and going through so much of pain, then a planet with a billion people, that will actually change into something that's meaningful change. That's my hope for the future. It's my hope too. Thank you so much. And I appreciate, I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and expertise with UVA's alumni, friends, and family. So thank you. And I want to thank you for listening for upcoming podcasts and other lifetime learning programming, recordings, and blogs. Please visit our website at engagement.virginia.edu forward slash learn. You can also find our podcasts on Spotify and with the Virginia Audio Collective, which is a network of UVA podcasts hosted by WTJU Radio and can be found at virginiaaudio.org. So thanks again, and we look forward to you taking part in future lifetime learning programs.